This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rustlin, today we have the return of, he's a writer, he's a director, he's an actor, he is Na'a Murad. Hi, good to be back. Good to have you here. And um, she is a first-timer on A Bit of Culture. She's a singer-songwriter. She also uh, works for the Penang House of Music mm-hmm. uh, up in Georgetown, and which is a fantastic place. And she is Fu Biju. Hi, thanks for having me. Hope it's not the last time. Nope, I'm sure. Well, yeah, it depends. Behave yourself. Let's we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the, you know, it's not an open mic. So uh, our three topics for today are, topic number one is, can the form of a civil protest make the protest itself self-defeating? Number two is, what's your Malaysian biopic? And finally, topic number three is, what's an open mic at a stand-up comedy joint? Oh, a very, very light and non-topical episode. Just uh, breezy stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, can, can the form of a... Uh, civil protest be self-defeating. So uh, last week I recommended, and you'll all remember this, uh, the Tour de France. I love the Tour de France. So there was a protest on the Tour de France uh, where the race was stopped by uh, a group of climate change activists who stopped the race. Now, it's really easy to to stop the Tour de France because it happens on a road. It happens a lot, actually. It's been happening for decades. It's a traditional thing. They're used to it. In London, uh, also climate change activists blocked a seriously major road in London and caused enormous traffic chaos. I think twice, actually. Um, Making a lot of people really angry and incredibly inconvenienced and uh, giving arguments uh, against these people saying, oh, you know, we burnt more petrol in our traffic jams that you made than we would have done and there's your climate change for you. And... uh, and also in, in the middle of that, I was thinking of um, uh, this uh, suffragette, woman suffragette back in like 1910 or something, 1911 in Britain. And she ran in front of a horse during a horse race, the Derby, and to, to, to protest for women's votes. And she got killed. It's a very early piece of film. You can actually find it. You can see her running onto the, the thing, just be, these horses in full pelt and she being just being completely bounced off. It's, it's quite shocking. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I like a bit of civil protest, but I wonder if, if the audience out there, I mean, all these people who are watching and doing one thing are then interrupted by something. And if it's, if it's, if you've closed a road, people way down the back of the traffic jam will have no idea what's going on. Um, so I, you know, I'm in two minds. I'm in two minds. Uh, Biju, do you, do you, uh, where do you stand on this kind of thing? I, I think I am firmly on the <clears throat> side of civil protests are meant to be inconvenient by nature. If a protest allows society or the people they're meant to um, call out to to live their lives like a normal day then the protest has failed. And if I, if I will go, like, think about, um, say, the civil rights protests, right? When segregation was already in law, in effect in law, but not practiced or enforced. And how um, the African-American community did protest by walking into white-owned businesses, sitting on 
the bar and demanding to be served, you know, and it caused a lot of ruckus. It caused a lot of um, bad blood and and violence even um, uh, within the different communities. But all those inconveniences have to happen for a cause to be advanced. Okay. Yeah. Well, well argued. Uh, no. Where, where do you? I, I kind of agree with that. It, it's like um, you, you can't make an omelet without without breaking eggs, kind of thing. But then there has been cases in the past. I mean, we've had our own several um, versions of Berse, mm-hmm. which were so well publicized, so well uh, beforehand. Everybody, I think, in the Klang Valley knew what was going to happen, and therefore. Accordingly, people reacted accordingly. I'm not going up to town today, et cetera, et cetera. And there is, there is something to be said about, about a protest which, which reaches out. Um, it needs to reach out to people who, who like, like you said, Cam, that people at the, at the beginning of the, at the end of a, of a traffic jam will not know what's going on in front. But um, that could mean also a failure in the protest for reaching out hmm. and letting it be known that this is happening. Um, I think there's a responsibility to do that too. Uh, it's not easy, but also it's not impossible. I think I think uh, it's also a um, it's also a, a, a issue of interest. I think there will always be people who are just simply not interested in protest and will have a negative reaction to any kind of protest because it's just oh a bunch of people causing trouble, and you're never mm-hmm. going to please those people. Yeah. yeah. Um, even if they know a year beforehand and they've been given a map of what's happening, they're still going to be unhappy about it. And, I, and those things just can't be helped. And, you know, come, I, I just want to compare, like, because the protest at the Tour de France was specifically about climate change, right? Like in the past, uh, early this year, there are so many climate change scientists who chained themselves to buildings to That's protest. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that climate change is is real, it's already at our doorsteps and they're so frustrated. They're so like at the end of the road, kind of a, a situation where why is not nobody listening to us and why is nobody listening to the data that we've researched, you know? So they chain themselves to build. Yeah, emotionally and psychologically breaking down. Yeah. They're not, they're um, not scientists anymore. As a they're, hope they're, to get attention. Yeah. But how much attention did those uh, protesters get? Not enough. But at a highly televised event like Tour de France that has the attention of millions of people around the world, that protest has been more effective in like drawing your attention than the climate change scientists chaining themselves to buildings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But we've been talking about um, protesting on the part of um, uh, causes that I think we broadly agree on. What Mm -hmm. if, what if the cause is something you just completely don't agree with? You know, it's like, you know, fascism today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and you're stuck in a traffic jam and, um, Something like that. I mean, are you still, you still going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, protests must be disruptive. No, no, I, w- I will happily put myself into that same position of the people who grumble. Um, though I believe that it has to, it has to happen. If it, if it needs to happen and it's within the same parameters, but it has to be fair. The parameters have to be fair. Whatever you're protesting about, there has to be set rules. The problem with some countries, I won't mention the countries, is, is that there, there are no set rules. It's suddenly, oh, well, we lost your permit or whatever. You know, it's like, um, oh, it's, it's, it's a second Tuesday and you're all wearing green. Therefore, your permit is, you know, like, like very vague 
laws. Everything has to be very set in stone, in which case then, and of course, very, very open. It can't be so draconian that nobody can have a protest. Or yeah, but no, you're, you're, you're advocating then for you must get a permit and stuff like that. I, I mean, I started off by talking about a protest that is deliberately not doing that permit route, which is just turning up and hijacking someone else's thing and saying, you know, our cause. Yeah. Well, it, it depends. If, if it's, let's say, if it's the kind of place where people show up at Tour de France or, or a bunch of skateboarders decided to close a road and there are no permits, there's, there's nothing. It depends on the response. What is the official response? If the official response is extremely aggressive, then um, I feel as though that, that it should be that way for, for any kind of, kind of protest. It should be fair and across the board. What I'm really worried about is like some protests get away with it, some don't. Yeah, you know, okay. I'm, more, I'm, more, I'm more concerned about where protests stand officially. Where the biases. Where the biases mm. are yeah. for, for those kind of protests. Because, because uh, what happened to the 20 France guys? Were they all arrested en masse? Was there a lot of aggression against them? I, I don't think so. No, like I said, the Tour de France, they're used to it. It's been happening, for, it happens every year. And so there'll be some protest by somebody. So that it's like, they're just ready for it. I mean, the truth is, um, climate change is very inconvenient too. And then we can't blame anybody for it. I mean, when, when you know, we, get, we got, you know, 12 days of rain and there's landslides everywhere. It's like, that's pretty damn inconvenient as far as I'm concerned, you know. Okay, Biju, uh, I, yes. I'll give the last word to you. And okay. because you're the last one to speak, I will probably end up agreeing with you. <laughs> Whatever you say well, now. Whatever you say. Be, yeah. You know, like, uh, I think, was it Voltaire who said that I might not... I'm paraphrasing, of course, like I might not agree with you, but I will fight till my very last breath to allow you the, the right to speak. So, you know, to come back to your question about like, like we are agreeing on causes that we believe in and we're all like, yeah, climate change, you know, uh, civil rights. But when it's like, say, let's say, you know, the Charlottesville incident in America where like right wing nationalists marched and paraded uh, for rights that are not fair and where do you draw the line who's the person that says like oh this cause is uh, is allowed to protest this cause is not so it's it's a very tricky line because at the fundamental of it is like the person who makes the rules on says like oh this kind of protest is okay that kind of protest is not okay it allows for a lot of room for abuse like Naa said you know like uh, arbitrary rules that are double standards that don't apply the same to everyone so in principle I feel like protests should be the same for everyone, no matter your cause. But I know in reality, that is a highly idealistic view. And some causes cause a lot of harm to communities and, and people, while other causes fight for equality. So I think that would be my personal barometer Okay. whether civil protests are. Mm. But I have to disagree with one thing, even though you said not to disagree. It was Voltaire's cousin Trevor. Ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. I wasn't Trevor, sure. Yeah, Trevor Voltaire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very unfamous man. Um, okay, so I, I, the agreement is then that uh, uh, we agree with civil protests that we agree with, but not with the ones we don't agree with. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we move on then to topic number two. Nah, nah, Morad. Um, what is your Malaysian biopic? Yeah, I mean, well, well. We've got a huge biopic. You know that that Matrilao has made seventy million mm. ringgit um, in 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 grosses. Uh, how long has it been? About a month, and that makes it just the 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 um, just behind the two recent Avengers films, Endgame and the one uh, um, Infinity War. 
So it's basically as as lucrative as a Hollywood blockbuster. So I'm thinking, well, you know, there you go. And there's been a lot of controversy about this. Let's not get into it, whether people like it or not, how historically accurate it is. But I'd just like to know from you guys, if money was no issue, you had a sugar daddy or sugar mommy or anything made of sugar comes up to you and says, here's as much money as you want. Do your biopic. But except for your responsibility is to, if possible, to be as accurate as, as possible, uh, you know, to, to, not, to not play around with history so much. What would you choose? I mean, who would you choose? Because basically, we are a bit, a bit uh, low on, on the concept of biopics. It's constantly big, action-packed, nationalist, anti-colonialist, adventure, gi- ginormous things, which uh, are kind of easy to sell, but also can be skewed to one particular mindset and that alone. Um, we have a lot of heroes. We have, we have a lot of heroes, whether legendary or, or recent or, or very down to earth. We, we have so many of them. And um, I'm wondering what you guys you know, think you would want to do. I mean, I'll start with mine. Mine is not even going to be a clever one or something vague or you know, um, uh, very PC. I'm going to go for the commercial thing. But I think even the commercial adventure idea can be, can be very interesting and can plumb into areas which we have not touched or into people who we do not know about. I would like to do, if that money was no issue, do a biopic about Datuk Yoke Mohedin. I don't know if the name is very um, familiar to any of you. Not to me. You, you really know what commercial means, don't you, Nara? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, the idea is commercial. The idea is very commercial because yeah. it, it's set in World War II and you've got, you've got the emergency later. It's an action-packed thing. I mean, this, this man is one of the... Because he was involved in a lot of internal security stuff, his, his life is mostly secret. Oh. But his, his, his stuff in, in, in uh, World War II is very well known. In the book, um, War of the Running Dogs, which I'm sure you've read, Ken. Yeah, no, you, you asked the I, That was going to be my answer. Was going to be him that, too. Yeah. Wow. Sounds <laughs> like you two need a sugar mummy right about now. <laughs> You've got about three minutes to come up with somebody else. We both are talking about him. Because, because you know, the, the, the chapter in War of the Running Dogs about the cousin. Yeah, that was my story. <laughs> yeah, it, amazing. I mean, like, okay, I'll let you tell it. No, you, you, you do tell it now. You tell it. No, there's a little bit of James Bond in him. Okay, I'll tell it. You know, there's a little bit, little bit of Rambo. There's a little bit, and it's history, and it's World War II. Uh, and it's, and it's uh, he, joined, he joined Force 136, was trained in Sri Lanka as, as members, and he was parachuted in. There was a group of um, local agents who were in contact with each other, but they could not know each other's names because um, if they were captured and tortured, you know, I would say, oh, it's Cam Razlan, he lives in something, Duta, whatever. You know, so I only knew you as... Uh, Kijang, or they had those kind of code names. So it's very, very, very spy thriller, very, very espionage kind of stuff. It's excellent. And you're, you're going to tell the story of, of the cousin, right? Which is also amazing. It's got bullets. It's very dramatic. And during the emergency, he was a target for assassins, for, for terrorist assassins all the time. So his life was this incredible... Um, he was, yeah, he was our James Bond. He was our James Bond, our Rambo, in, in a way. And apparently he was a pretty... Uh, Mubin Shepherd called him the current, the, well, during that time, the 50s, the hantuah of today, because he was a man of action. He, was, he should have had his own action man. You know what I mean? Like, mm. the, the, <laughs> mm. uh, only Cam knows what an action man is amongst all the listeners. <laughs> oh, so right. so um, the, only, the only thing to do is to basically find out what the man was about, um, what he symbolizes, and that would make a complete story. 
But as a character who has an arc, a story, or has, has adventures or things that we can illustrate, you've got more than you need. So if you don't have anybody else, tell me what you, you think of him. Let me tell uh, uh, Bijou, just before you, you, you start, let me, let me just clear, finish this one off. Um, so Please. the aspect that I, I find intriguing about, about your, uh, your Mohidin, was it? Mohidin. Yeah. yeah that, it, I think he got a Latochip later on in yeah. Well, the bit that I, I find fascinating is that he was, um, so he was a sort of communist hunter during the emergency in the 1950s, especially in the Pahang region. And uh, so he was um, hunting down communists. But his cousin, Malay fella, two, two Malay fellas, his cousin was a communist. So, um, so hardcore communist. Yeah. yeah. So the cousin was up in the jungle and. So two cousins, and they didn't like hate each other. They, you know, they were cousins. They loved each other. Um, fighting against each other. And um, so he would, uh, York would send messages to say to his cousin through the jungle grapevine, you know, come and, come and hand yourself in. Let's, let's not escalate this. And then one day he gets a letter or an envelope uh, from his cousin and he opens it up and out drops a bullet. <laughs> um, I can't actually remember what happened at the end, but... He kept the bullet, Cam. Do you know that part of the story? He kept the bullet because he was so incensed that his oh, cousin would right. threaten him in this way. He kept the bullet until one fateful day when he and his group, his Watania group or what, whatever force he was, was commanding at that time, got into this, 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 this communist uh, base and there was a kerfuffle, there was shooting and stuff and he realized his cousin was there. So he carried the bullet because he was so incensed that he was going to use that bullet on his cousin as a... As a Middle he finger. put that bullet into the magazine to go shoot his cousin. Yeah, chased his cousin down. He made for a movie. You guys <laughs> picked the right one. Got <laughs> yeah. him at the river. He was so dramatic by the river. The cousin couldn't go anywhere. Pulled the trigger, and the bullet was a dud. <laughs> the cousin saw, you know, in that eventuality, <laughs> he's got everything. Anyway, yeah. so uh, so that's me and Nah. That's our our story, our biopic. Um, it, by the way, the book's called The War of the Running Dogs. Okay, um, I'm going to go check that out. It's a very old book. Yeah, but there's just one chapter. His, his bit is one chapter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. B- Bijou, what, what, would be your, what would be your choice? Um, it was, this one was easy for me when, when, you, when you mentioned the topic. Uh, I'd love to do one on City One Kembang. So I never knew, uh, like I never learned about her in the history books and whatever, but I think a couple of years ago, I managed to uh, go to a, a small lecture uh, done by a researcher whose name I'm sorry I forgot by now, um, but she had uh, undertaken uh, in-depth research about JCT Wankembang. So she's apparently a warrior uh, princess slash leader in Kelantan way, 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 way back in the day. And um, one of the most fascinating things that I, I remember from that lecture is that she w- went to the, the Kelantan State Museum and there is a gigantic painting of City Wan Kembang that is unfortunately hidden from the public. And in there, you can see City um, Wan Kembang is at holding court. And she has female warriors uh, as a personal guard. And all these male traders from other regions paying homage to her. And, you know, she she's dressed in traditional, I guess, like her attire back then, which is you know, sort of like strapless thing with armbands and jewelry and uh, and all that. And I just found that historically, like 
this this amazing woman leader warrior who has like female guards and and is such a I, I just found that so fascinating and it's in Malaysian history. Which, which era was this? I I am not a hundred percent sure. It's uh, way back when. No, it's way back when. Those, uh, <laughs> those days. Last Let me time. do a quick Google and see if I can <laughs> did answer she, you. Did she, did she um, fight the Thais or the British? Or mm, I think uh, not bef- uh, way, way the- before the British. Yeah. So that's really cool. Uh, we 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 got we got to move on, um, Bijou. But again, what what's her name again? Che City Wan Kembang from she ruled uh, from 1610 to 1667. Cool. That's the height. Of she the- ruled. She literally ruled Kelantan. Yes. Yeah. That's the the kind of the dying. That's the, when the clash of uh, the, the the Malay trading world came really headlong into contact with um, the Europeans and, and the it, West, and it, it yeah. ended badly. Um, okay, great. Uh, I think we've come up with some good ones there. I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna. We got to move on. We're gonna throw one more name out. Um, uh, Blossom Wong. Ooh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Blossom Wong would be amazing. The yeah. Malaysian Matahari. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Google that one, folks. Okay, well, well, um, a bunch of friends I knew wanted to do this story about a, a high-ranking Chinese police officer who actually went undercover in the, in the CPM for like years. Can you imagine what he went through? Mm. It must have been. Um, that, that, I don't want to say too much about it because that project might still happen, and I hope it does because it sounds really, really gripping, you know. Well, uh, younger listeners, um, do Google Blossom Wong and also Google The Emergency whilst you're there. And yeah, oh, Chet City Wan Kambang. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, I think we've come up with some really good ones there. Okay, but uh, in a moment, before we go from one thing to the other on Bit of Culture, we're going to be talking about um, open mics at stand-up comedy joints here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Rasler, Na'a Murad, and Fu Biju. And now, Biju, yes. um, what, what is an open mic? And what's, what is stand-up comedy? <laughs> okay. Um, I have had the privilege of uh, watching open mic comedy shows for a good five years. And although I'm not a stand-up comedian myself, I have, I think the stand-up uh, comedy community would not think it amiss for me to uh, speak about what open mics are here because when the whole controversy about the open mic performance at Crack House Comedy Club exploded and from people's reactions it was very clear that a lot of people didn't understand what open mics are they thought it's like a structured performance but essentially open mics are a free sort of safe space for anyone to come up and perform anyone So you don't get background checks. You might be a complete newbie that no one has heard before, or you could be a famous comedian wanting to try new material. And open mic is that free space for you to come up and do do your bit. So most uh, open mics sometimes don't have rules, but Crack House Comedy does have rules. So one of them is that performers cannot touch on royalty and no filming of your performance is allowed. So with the whole controversy that exploded, um, you can see very clearly that this performer had broken the rules in itself, you know, and they uploaded videos with the malicious intention to create controversy and, and they succeeded. Unfortunately, the fallout of that is that 
an art space like Crack House Comedy Club um, and spaces like Merdekaya, who does open mics for music. And these open mics are literally the foundation of an art scene. If you want to have amazing comedians like Douglas Lim, you have to look at where a good comedian comes from. And it's always from the grassroots. You, you know how like football is developed in countries that have great football programs? It's always from the grassroots. Every yes. neighborhood has a, yeah. has a football field. Like anyone has access to, to uh, play this game. And then this ecosystem around that allows you to find amazing talent nurture them yes and then eventually develop into amazing football stars i think douglas lim and all those guys started with open mic too definitely most of, the, most of them did yeah definitely every single comedian you see today that that you recognize the names every single one started from open mics and i will have to say like i have to highlight to people who don't know that crack house comedy club is literally the most instrumental uh, institution for stand-up comedy in Southeast Asia, not just Malaysia. Like so many regional names have gotten their, their start at Crack House. So many international names like Paul Ogata, Gina Yashiri, they have come through the Crack House and performed there. And they are an institution that deserves to be protected and celebrated. So I really hope that people, you know how social media is today, like, Anything happens, people jump on it, become a mob without having the space to read the yes. nuances. And unfortunately, I feel like that's what happened with this whole open mic thing and crack house. And they are the ones who have to bear the consequences of yeah, this. I, I think, uh, Biju, you made a very cogent, eloquent argument there for closing down comedy clubs. Because if, if I'm in a position of power... And if I want to punish and quash freedom of speech in the middle classes, then surely the first place I should go and get at is uh, closing down comedy clubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Like, yeah, like like Kevin Jay, the the comedian. He recently, uh, he just I think yesterday, he said stand up comedy is a mirror held up to society, and if you don't like what you see, then perhaps you should turn the mirror onto yourself. I'm really grateful you mentioned the fact that Crack House had all these rules in place. I didn't know about them. And yeah. I was wondering, even before we started, the, how Crack House could have protected themselves. And it looked as though they were protecting themselves pretty well. Because uh, I was uh, listening to the uh, January 6th commission, you know, the whole thing about the, the, the insurrection. In, in America. We just hastened to add, in America. In America. Right? Where it was brought up about how social media has made things extremely difficult now. Uh, um, misinformation can become a, a pandemic very quickly. Mm, and then I think yeah. um, the idea is good because the thing is with an open mic, it, it, the choice is there. You do not have to go to an open mic. If you have that freedom to say things, is an open mic, therefore people are allowed to say what they want. Okay, you have rules, but um, it's not for everybody. Um, people who don't go to an open mic are expecting to hear all kinds of stuff, including bad mm. comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, frequently, more often than not, really back yeah, home. Back home yeah. these, but also strange opinions and, and maybe even offensive opinions or maybe yep. good opinions but told badly. And mm. uh, that should be the choice of the people who show up. And I think somebody shouldn't have recorded it. That rule itself should protect them. Yeah. The idea of it stays there. It doesn't go out anywhere else. It, the social media doesn't come into it. 
yeah, they not only do they have these rules in place, but uh, I think the next day after that particular performance, which happened in early June, the first week of June itself, uh, Rizal Van Gezel, the owner of the crack house, had actually posted up a statement on his personal Facebook page. Uh, and I think also on the Crack House page, stating that two individuals had come in, did a performance that received a lot of complaints and they are now banned from Crack House Comedy Club. And this all happened in the first week of June. And it came like a couple days after Merdekaya, the music mm. venue, who had also had really unpleasant run-ins with these two individuals, the had people, also yeah. tweeted about it. And so Crack House had already taken action in the first week of June. But it's only mm. now that this video has surfaced, uploaded by the female herself, um, intending to create controversy, intending to uh, elicit all these extreme opinions, and they succeeded. My conspiracy theory is it's a false flag thing. It's targeted. It's a targeted thing. I don't know who this, these two are. but So the handphone, the mobile phone, though, has, has just broken down the, the concept of, um, of a, a space. I mean, you... you you pay a ticket to go and experience a certain experience and and you don't get to have that because it lives on and it it bursts out there's no there's no security but you know um a famous philosopher called Trevor Voltaire once said uh Trevor again <laughs> Tre Trevor again that um uh you know protest is supposed to be disruptive and uh if it doesn't inconvenience people and uh, and also the, his Trevor Trevor Voltaire's other brother, not our Voltaire, said, <laughs> "You don't, you don't make an omelet without breaking eggs." So therefore, you know, the disruption and indeed the closing down of venues and stuff is clearly to somebody's advantage yeah. in advancing. So you know, it, but there's no, there's no safety against them. It's just too neat that that two places should be targeted and and and. It also is, I mean, I would like to say that, you know, like, like uh, one thing about protest is your medium, the message, the way you, you spread your message is also very important because sometimes you have something very interesting to say, but if it's simply for shock value, I mean, I've had a friend who went to the same trouble. Can you know him? This is ages ago. Very similar, but it was at a, a monologue thing in the 2010 or something like that. He, what he had to say was excellent, but the way he said it, became what everybody remembered. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you went out there and you did something shocking and therefore people remember that it was shocking and it was offensive, but nobody remembers the message, which, which is unfortunate. Absolutely. So uh, Biju, we're running out of time, but then can you advocate one more time then for, even though it's a really soft target for conservative authorities, and it's an easy target. It's just like, yeah, let's close it down. Like, vote yeah. winner. <laughs> is, is there an argument you can make to implore people to, I don't know, have mercy? I don't know. I, I don't know if anything I, I say would, would, would sway the people in positions of authority. But I would hope that they would at least like to adhere to the fact that closing down venues and these kind of knee-jerk reactions have to follow procedure and go by the book. Yeah. Well, I, I would just say that it's really, it's really, really easy to create a cultural desert. It's so simple. It's really easy. If you've got the power, you can do it, no problem. History has shown us so many, so many examples of how cultural deserts are created. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we move on, though, to... Um, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be 
of interest. Um, and I, well, I go first, don't I? So uh, my one is, um, I, I got the wrong end of the stick on something, but I, I discovered something quite interesting. I Sounds thought, painful. <laughs> yeah, I thought I discovered um, a YouTube channel that was Malaysian that had 10 million followers. Um, and I was, until, until I was talking to Bijou just now, I had been mispronouncing it. <laughs> as Lofi Girl, but it's Lo-Fi Girl, obviously. Ah. And because and, and, it was in a news report, and I kind of like read it like barely. And all I saw was Lo-Fi Girl, 10 million followers, Malaysia. And I thought, well, hey, Malaysia Bully. So yeah. I went and checked it out. And, and it's, um, it's this, uh, it's music. Um, Bijou, how, how would I describe it? It's Lo-Fi. That's why it's called Lo-Fi Girl. Okay. <laughs> Um, there are people out there who will understand what that means. And uh, it's really cool. A bit of animation as well. And, uh, and of course, it turned out that the Malaysia in question here was a Malaysian music company that had popped up a copyright uh, infringement order on it and had the, the channel removed. The Malaysian uh, uh, music company in question said that they had been hacked and that it wasn't their fault. But anyway, so Lo-Fi Girl eventually got back on and had gained publicity and a fan in myself. Um, it's not Malaysian, sadly. It's French, uh, but it's really good. It's really good. It's very low fi though, isn't it? It's, it's very I, 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 yeah. Ah, low. You know. Wow. You know. Fi. Yeah. I know exactly what that means. Dude. Well, I I'm a big fan of um, the French band Air. Mm, I like them too. Right. So it reminds it's that kind of thing, but uh, so yeah, lo-fi girl, and I because I'm because I'm not just I want to show off to Bijou that I. No things about music and youth culture. Uh, so that's my recommendation. Um, Naa, what's yours? Uh, well, I haven't thought about it much, but um, the, the second season of Only Murders in the Building is playing right now. It's the third episode or fourth episode. And I would just recommend to anybody who has not uh, followed it to, to, to start from the first season and, and watch it because it's a, it's a, it's a neo-murder mystery, which... Uh, is comedic, it's very, very inventive, very entertaining, and yet it does not shy away from the idea of um, the mystery has to be engaging, the murder mystery has to be interesting, and it is all those things. It's um, To give you an example, there's one episode in the first season which is totally from a point of view of a person who's mute, and therefore that whole episode contrives to have no dialogue whatsoever, and yet the story is very clear, very inventively shot, it's just a very, very clever and entertaining. He's deaf. He's deaf. He's deaf, actually. Yeah. Well, one of the characters, and so, so that that he's deaf mute. So, so that 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 that, that one episode. So you've got all these inventive um, episodes. You've got great characters. Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. Well, that's for you, lo-fi people. You've got Selena Gomez. Yeah, cool. She's pretty lo-fi. Yeah, cool, Cam. Cool. Um, and I think she's it's, it's really fun. If you're really, really tired of shows which have like humongous stakes where at the end of every season it's like the world is being destroyed or or you know like half mm, the characters mm. are going to be thrown into jail or going to die and and it's like um stakes 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 intense 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 throw everything but the kitchen sink to keep your attention this one is done in a well murder mysteries are by definition kind of cozy aren't they especially you take the, the english drawing room because that cozy element where it's not constant danger but it's constant fun I don't know how else to describe it. No, it's, so it's, it's good. Yeah. Only murders in the building. Yeah. Do you watch it, Bijou? No, but I think I oh. will now. Oh, it's really after good. Now I've described it like that. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. It's really good. 
it's good fun. It's good fun. And it is only it's called only murders in the building because it's about three um true life murder enthusiasts, true crime enthusiasts who do a podcast. And they're too lazy or too scared to actually do uh, murders everywhere. So they said, well, it's the only concentrate on murders in the building. Of course, they were lucky enough to have one murder in the first season. Um, I won't tell you what happens in the second season. But uh, so that's why it's called Only Murders in the Building. Yeah. It, it's, it's good fun. It's good fun. And it also, as I said, uh, stars Selena Gomez, who is Malaysian and you cannot prove to me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Only Murders in the Building. And um, Biju, what's yours? Um, there is an exhibition uh, coming up from July 24th until wow. October 30th. It's called Splendors of Malay World Textiles. It's from the personal collection of a man called John Ang, who has spent the last eight years collecting the most extensive um, treasure trove of Malay textiles. So, and wow. so I've, I've had a sneak uh, peek of some of them and it's some of these pieces are like 80 years old, 100 years old, and it's going to be open to the public. And I think I've never seen anything quite like this collection. And I hope that uh, whoever's listening would feel intrigued and check it out because I feel it's worth a look, definitely. That is the most culture uh, recommendation we've ever had on a bit of culture. I would oh. like, That's actually culture, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't apologize. Culture. I feel ashamed, you know, I was like lo-fi girl and... No, that's culture too and arts, yeah. Bishu, this show is called A Little Bit of Culture, not a heck of a lot of culture. Yeah, so we we filled our quota. So, uh, Bijou, where where is this exhibition? Uh, It's going to be at the Exhibition Hall of Manara Ken in TTDI, and it opens on Sunday, July 24th. That's uh, That's BFM. That's BFM HQ. It's your office, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> you have to go check it out, come, and drag your colleagues with you. That'd be very easy. Mm. Um, okay, great. And uh, from the 24th to October, July. July until October 30th. Oh, so it's about, about a week away. All right. Yes. And it's uh, textiles. Yes, Malay world textiles. Cool. Excellent. Well, I feel, I feel, I feel, I don't know, cultured already. Yeah, yeah. I feel improved. So improved yeah, yeah. by this, this yeah. episode. So, uh, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show, and I'd like to thank Na'a Murad. You're welcome, and it's a pleasure, as always. Indeed it is. And uh, Fu Bijou, uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Come. And uh, can I just ask, um, so you're a singer-songwriter. Yes. Uh, are, there any, are there any gigs or any music that we could hear that the audience might want to catch up on anyway? Um, are you under the I radar? Think- Maybe your audience might enjoy uh, my music video and documentary that I did on the song Gendering, which is written by Jimmy Boyle, one, uh, the same person who wrote the Penang State Anthem and songs like uh, Jau Jau, Putra Putri. Um, legend, yeah. A, a total legend. legend. And I had the honor of uh, re- re-releasing my version of his song, and I, in the documentary, I also had the privilege of speaking to his son, James Boyle, his wife, Lini Boyle, and his former bassist, Mr. E. Fuxin. And I think maybe the listeners of this show might be interested. So just type Chendering, C-H-E-N-D-E-R-I-N-G, and my name, Bichu, B-I-H-Z-H-U, onto YouTube, and you'll see them. The music video and the documentary. I'm going to look at it right Thanks, now. Thanks, Na'a. Thanks. Bye, you've... It's called a bitter culture, this show. You've just kind of like just cultured us <laughs> over the edge. 
yeah. We're going to have to talk about quotas again. Your, your producers are going to like fire you and hire yeah. her camp. So you better too be much, careful. Right? Too much culture. <laughs> edit this out. Edit, edit all her stuff out. Going to have to. We've got to reduce about, her by at least 15%. I mean, she quotes Voltaire, for God's oh, sake. Oh, yeah. Well, the wrong one, but... <laughs> yeah, tre- Trevor. <laughs> anyway, so, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And, um, well, thank you very much for myself, Cam Russell, and please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.